Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We have some great interviews coming up. Uh, Michael Rubin coming up and Larry Kudlow. Michael Rubin on Iran, Larry Kudlow on the economy and what uh, we expect from it in 2018. First few things to discuss, college football playoff results. Well, um, the uh, the final four, if you will. Uh, I, um, <laughs> I figured Alabama was going to beat Clemson, but I uh, opined, let's just use that verb, that uh, Clemson would not lose by more than 13 points. So I, <laughs> I, in, in a friendly discussion, I took Clemson plus 13 and uh, didn't win uh, in that uh, non-existent uh, uh, wager. Uh, but uh, Alabama just totally dominated. Uh, the good news for me on the Oklahoma and Georgia game was I went back and forth, couldn't make up my mind. And in that, I was prescient. Because that's exactly what happened in the game. One of the great games of all time in college football. Back and forth, up and down, back and forth. Uh, lead changing a lot. And, um, you know, last one to get the ball and score. And, uh, you know, it was, um, it was, it was pretty impressive in, in my uh, imaginary, uh, a bet I had, uh, Oklahoma plus 10. So I was fine on that front. But, and now comes the final. And, you know, in, in, in my um, imaginary fantasy world of betting here, um, there's one thing at the very top, which I should always remember, don't bet against Alabama. It's <laughs> pretty so, good advice. Um, I'm going to take Alabama, and uh, I don't need points or anything, just, you know, Alabama. So there, there you go. And that will end the college football season. I don't know what I'll do uh, on Saturdays and Mondays now for a while, but uh, we'll see. I don't know if I can bring myself to watch the pros, given the other distractions of the pros, but uh, so be it. Uh, let me talk about Steve Bannon thing, and let me talk about it briefly, because it's uh, all over the news yesterday, today, probably tomorrow. Um, it's a huge distraction. Um, bottom line is pay attention to what the president does, his actions, legislation, his regulations, his comments on the world situation, such as Iran and other things. Um, this is very unfortunate. Uh, I, I was watching Anthony Scaramucci this morning who said Bannon either has to apologize or walk, walk it back. Um, and I think he does. I mean, the things he said were really uh, beyond the pale. And uh, apparently he did start to walk it back a little last night on Breitbart Radio saying, you know, the president's a great man and he supports him 100%. But, um, boy, is this grist for the mill for the critics, uh, you know, White House and disarray and all that. Um, I say take what the man does, um, these things. Who knows whether what this guy Wolf wrote in this book, uh, what's it called, Fire and Fury? Right. Um, whether it's it's true, a lot of the people who are quoted in the book say it's absolutely made up quotes. So um, I, you know, I, who knows? But uh, a tempest in a teapot or a broader tempest—I don't know. But pay attention to what the president does as president, and leave the rest of this to the uh, to the page six people to the uh, style section. Chris, any comment on that? Yeah. Well, I'd be interested to know what you think this is going to mean for a lot of the GOP primary races. You know, we saw sort of a Bannon versus Trump in Alabama, um, and we know how that ended. And now there are a few other races, Arizona, Wisconsin, are some of of some of them where Bannon has picked his primary candidate and the GOP establishment uh, has picked another. And then Trump, I guess, has or hasn't decided on where he's landing. But I think it's going to expose, you know, I think this thing goes on because 
Bannon seems like he's going to make some noise in some of these GOP primaries. Well, I will tell you, uh, put it mildly, he will have less impact. Um, he will be taken less seriously. His own base at Breitbart is angry at him for criticizing Trump and Trump's. And I think he has just, uh, whatever else, as a result of this book, has limited his own effectiveness. Uh, it's interesting to me that so far, at least, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, he has not said what uh, is quoted in the book is wrong. Uh, right. Right? He has not said you mean, that. So. You, mean, you mean Bannon? Bannon. That's right. right. That's right. right. So uh, he may have to live with that. And if he does, his impact will be less. That's all. But um, I think he's part of history now. Um, so... Uh, California went to pot uh, uh, in January, and it's now legal to buy a pot in uh, recreational use of marijuana in California. You've heard me on this over and over again. I think it's a big mistake. Um, we are in a serious opioid crisis in this country. Um, making marijuana more generally available does not help in that regard at all. Um, not everyone who smokes pot goes on to other things, but... Uh, Everyone who uh, gets into opioids or other things has, uh, almost everyone has started with pot. So um, this argument about whether it's a gateway drug or not is kind of foolish. Of course it is. Not everyone walks through the gate, but um, people start with pot and move on to other things. But they don't even have to move on to other things to realize the damage. The marijuana, con the THC content, tetrahydrocannabinol content of marijuana that's being sold in Colorado now and will be sold in California is enough to wreck your brain and uh, have some effect on your soul as well. So this is a, a sorry thing. But California's kind of going off the deep end anyway. A sanctuary state and all this business. We shall see what happens with the golden the golden state. Uh, I was I, reminded I again. Add, yeah, please. If I could add one thing to the California thing, because sure. you reminded me of this a while ago, um, I think it's just important for people who are considering the sides on this issue. Remember this quote? Who said this? How many people can get stoned and still have a great state or a great nation? Jerry Brown. California. And that was, Jerry yes, Brown. the Democrat governor of California. Yeah, and now it's, law, now it's the law. Where was he on this? Was he opposed, you know? He was, I don't know exactly if you can yeah. pinpoint him. He sort of, early on, he said he wanted to see what happened in Washington and Colorado, and then he seemed to come out against it. Uh, I, I don't know what he said recently, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, well, there you go. We shall see, but we shall see. And uh, as we're seeing in Colorado, um, it's not going to be good. About every six months, something called the Bennett Hypothesis appears again. Um, I really didn't know that I uh, was uh, doing something uh, profound here, but apparently to the uh, scholarly community on uh, higher education it was. It's called the Bennett Hypothesis turns 30 this year. The hypothesis, I thought, was basic common sense. I said the huge availability of federal money um, drives up tuition. Uh, that uh, tuition is maybe $10,000 a year, and then the federal government increases its grants and loans, uh, uh, and then the colleges go up to 12000 or fourteen, and then the federal government increases its availability. Now, these colleges would raise the price anyway if they can, and all of them who can do uh, raise their price, but um, the, uh, uh, the federal government is a kind of four-barrel carburetor here. Uh, uh, is that right, four-barrel carburetor? I think I'm saying the right thing. Uh, that's right. That's right. There's four barrel and two barrel. 
Yeah, anyway, and uh, there you go. Uh, and, you know, the problem with the student loan business isn't that we shouldn't be giving out student loans, but the private sector should be more involved in this than the government. The government isn't handling it, hasn't handled it very well. Uh, the current Secretary of Education is trying to do something about it. But, um, you know, it's the largest liability in the, in the federal government's books right now, 1.4 and going to $1.5 trillion. So... Um, the Bennett Hypothesis, a friend of mine wrote and said, yes, now we have, uh, you know, first law of thermodynamics, Heisenberg's indeterminacy principle, Einstein's relativity theory, and the Bennett Hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Worth laughing at. That's right. It's pretty simple common sense. Well, didn't well, take a genius. <laughs> well, what's funny is you said it sort of, I, I mean, I think at the time you wrote it in the New York Times. I think you wrote a piece for the New York Times yeah, early yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you wrote it, but, you know, not to disparage it, but you wrote it sort of as common sense, not as a right. a, as a study. That and, is a great revelation. But when you were listing all these, you know, famous hypotheses from science over, over years, that's almost how a lot of education wonks and experts interpret it though as it was yeah. as if it was some you know uh wild hypothesis that suddenly now has been proven true when in reality you're just kind of explaining basic common sense and it's still true they're still they're still boggled by why this is happening yeah well we'll, we'll somebody will figure this out <laughs> yeah. i hope so anyway <laughs> that's uh my commentary and um let's get to our interviews you're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. It's a special privilege to welcome to the show one of the key architects of the Republican tax reform plan, Larry Kudlow. Larry is an old friend. He's a CNBC senior contributor. He's the author of JFK and the Reagan Revolution, A Secret History of American Prosperity. Welcome back, Larry. Thank you, Bill. It was great to be on the phone call with you the other day, you and Steve Moore and others. And uh, I'll ask this question because I just read your Newsmax article. Uh, we'll put that up uh, on, the, on the website, Larry Kudlow, investment boom coming after tax cut. We have these individual tax cuts, and then we have this big corporate tax rate, which will have the greater effect over time in terms of the economy. Oh, I think the business tax cuts have the most growth power. And um, as I said, we... We're probably right now in the front end of the first business investment boom in over 20 years. And uh, lowering the corporate rate and giving immediate expensing on new equipment and also making it uh, easier to repatriate the foreign cash, these are huge things, huge. I mean, the incentive effect could be as much as 25%. We've never seen anything like that on the business side. You know, during the Reagan years, we dropped the individual rate from 70 to 28, uh, and JFK uh, did it from 91 to, to, to 70. But we never really got around to the business side. And, that, and I know people will tell you uh, consumers are 70% of the economy, blah, blah, blah. That's actually not true, but more to the point, it's business that drives the economy. It's investment. It's um, starting new companies replenishing old companies, um, providing more capital per worker so we can train them and give them the best tools. The benefits flow disproportionately to, um, to the wage earners, to the working folks. And that, of course, translates into family income and consumer spending. I don't think, I don't think the swamp, uh, whether it's Cambridge, New York, or Washington, <laughs> understands that. I think a lot of economists are going to have 
a lot of embarrassment when this thing uh, works. Business side is what drives the economy, and we have really created great new incentives for them. So as a non-economist, let me ask it this way. If the tax cuts average out to something like 2000 a year, more in the pocket of, uh, of the average taxpayer, will these other changes that you just described lead to more than that in yes. that pocket? Yes, that's a key point. Okay. You're looking at these static estimates, uh, you know, 2000 bucks a year may be correct. You know, the personal rates were lowered somewhat. Uh, the brackets were widened somewhat. So I'm fine with that, but that doesn't really get to the dynamic effects of a business boom where wages are going to go up a ton. And, you know, for many years, we have made this argument, um, you know, corporations don't pay taxes. We pay taxes. They pass it along into lower wages or higher consumer prices or lower shareholder value in the stock market. That's what happens if you raise the corporate tax. If you lower the corporate tax, you're going to have um, the opposite effect. You're going to have more business, more profits, better wages, uh, and as I said, better family income and consumer spending. In other words, the Democrats are saying this is a good for rich people and, and rich corporations. That just completely, utterly misses the point. Utterly misses the point. The dynamic here is in business. You can't have, you know, take a fifty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year wager. That person, man or woman, is not going to maintain that wage or even get a better one if they're working for a business that's doing poorly, either because it's badly managed or it lacks funds, it lacks investment. And my friend um, Fred Smith, the founder, chairman of FedEx, you probably know mm-hmm, him. Sure. Um, he, you know, he always says, "Stop punishing investment because it's the heart of the economy." Yep. And what we've done is we are now rewarding investment, and that's a gigantic sea change. Very much like, you know, what our great friend, the late Jack Kemp, argued: a rising tide will lift all boats, which he got from JFK. But the the cumulative impact here is going to be economy wide. You know what? Everybody is going to win. I mean, I talked to some of my very well-to-do, I am, I am very well-to-do Upper East Side uh, dinner parties complaining about losing the deduction on their state and local taxes. And I'd go, well, look, blame Cuomo, blame governors of high-tax states, but, 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 boys and girls, business booming will help you in every way you're going to have whatever it is you do if the economy is growing at three to four instead of one to two you are going to be in far better shape and that this local uh, tax deduction has nothing to do with anything except maybe it'll spawn maybe you, my limousine liberal friends will stop voting for left-wing governors okay. maybe that'll okay. change i don't know do you um do you see signs already that the media is paying some attention, some of it, to these companies saying, okay, $1,000 bonuses? Uh, is that significant? Is it a significant number of companies that are doing that? Or what else do we see or are we seeing already um, the signs of this uh, of this change? Well, two things. One is what you said. I've never seen this kind of um, 
spontaneous wage increases, whether they're dividends or bonuses or whatever, or raising the minimum wage inside the company. It's um, very interesting to me that they're jumping on this. And I think they realize, the management realizes that the, the workforce has not had a raise uh, of any uh, appreciable amount since 2000. It's a long time. So I think they're very sensitive to that. And um, secondly, if you look at the economic statistics, um, business equipment, which is the key part of business investment, in the last six months has really popped up for the first time since the mid-2000s. And that's what's getting us above 3% on the GDP. And we're probably going to score one in the fourth quarter, so we'll probably have three quarters of 3% GDP. We haven't had that since the middle 2000s. And um, I see it in durable goods, in factory orders. Those are all leading indicators of business investment. We just saw yesterday uh, the ISM, the Institute for Supply Managers, which report on all manner of manufacturing. Uh, well, that thing jumped way up. In fact, it's been rising, I don't know, better part of about 12 months now, having slumped in the... Uh, 2014, 2015, uh, it's been rising. That's another sign. Manufacturing is coming down. All industrial activities starting to come back, and investment is, you know, business investment, very key part of that. So the numbers are coming in, but also this this very unusual corporate movement to um, to provide their uh, workforce uh, okay. with higher wages. Right. I mean, I'm listen. I, I don't want the federal government to dictate the minimum wage. I don't even like state governments to dictate the minimum wage. That's none of their business. But when individual companies do it, that's really cool. And yeah. that shows you yeah. that the times are getting better. All right. Now, uh, let's go from economics, your expertise, to psychology. I don't know how you are on that, but we'll find <laughs> out. Okay. The psychology of the consumer. People are saying, well, I'm going to combine two questions into one here, two parts. You'll see what I'm getting at. The president needs to explain uh, these uh, tax cuts to the American people. Why does he need to explain? If they're going to happen, people will realize it, won't they? And second, the Democrats will shellac Republicans in light of this tax package and other economic uh, parts of this plan uh, in, in November. Uh, how important is the psychology here as opposed to the economic reality? And what about these predictions of a shellacking in November by Democrats yeah. because of this economic uh, shift? <clears throat> well, um, here's a question. Would you rather have 4% growth or 2% growth? I'll take 4 Yes. And that's why the Democrats are completely missing the boat here. I mean, I hear and, you know, read and talk to many of the same folks you do. It's going to be Republican shellacking, tax cuts for the rich. I don't believe it. I mean, I had the same stuff, so did you. We were working for Reagan years ago, and yep. um, nothing succeeds like success. Uh, it will, will, will the consumer, the wage earner, that's kind of a dumb question, but I'll ask it. Will, will he know it? Uh, when when it increases, and will it affect his judgment and his uh, how he pulls the lever? Well, actually, yes, he'll know it. He's not going to know it because guys like Kudlow walk through the theoretical okay. and economic analysis. He'll not from listening it. to this show, he won't know it, no matter how profound you are, right? 
<laughs> he'll know it some other way. Is what yeah, you're he yeah. and or his wife and or his sons and daughters who are in the workforce will know it because their pockets are going to be fuller. Okay. All right. This is the Reagan. Reagan's so smart and clever. Remember, take home pay. Reagan's great phrase: take home pay. Yeah. If their take home pay rises steadily, and it really hasn't gone up in seventeen years, if the take home pay, if the pocketbooks and the wallets uh, become swollen, they are gonna love it, and they may not love Donald Trump. They may not love the Republican Party. I don't know. But they're going to love the guys that delivered uh, prosperity. They're going right. to love the guys that actually helped their, you know, their families on a, on, a, on, a, on a weekly, monthly basis and so forth. That's the key to this. I mean, Trump said the other day, um, this thing will sell itself. Now, there's some truth to that. I would prefer, uh, or I, I would amend that by saying, I think guys like me have to keep on selling it. We have to keep on talking it up, and we have to keep bashing back on the Democrats' class warfare. But to some extent, the president is right. If we are, if our supply side view is right, and the economy grows faster and wages rise and so forth, it does sell itself. It really does, and I think that we will see it this year. We're All right, that, that was my last question: is when, when, when will people feel that? In you their know, I, I, I think again, looking at these numbers coming in i think we're beginning to see it as i say the front edge of a investment boom but um technically bill the irs is going to change um the withholding rates and the uh income tax bracket thresholds that will all be available in february and i had long talk Stephen mnuchin about this treasury man and they are absolutely totally geared up. They're you know hot breath on the IRS to get it done in February. So there you have it. I mean that's okay. the beginning of the year. So okay. I think it's got okay. a big impact on 2018. Um, I don't know. I think Republicans are going to capture Senate seats uh, in the House. It's always a struggle in the midterms. But I think at least they'll break even. At least they'll break even. Okay, thank you. Last question, just because it's in the news. Any mm-hmm. opinion on this Bannon stuff and this yeah. book? And I do. I mean, I know Bannon. Spent lots of time with Bannon. Um, I think he just walked off the cliff. There was no excuse for what he did. Uh, basically, stabbing the president in the back. And Bannon talks about treason. You know, this goofy Nothingheimer meeting that happened during the campaign where. It probably lasted 10 or 15. People were walking out of the meeting as soon as they saw this Russian woman who had no information. So Bannon calls that treason. That's nonsense. What I really do believe that uh, political treason was committed by Bannon against his benefactor. It reminds me, Bill, of my former boss many years ago, David Stockman. Remember, late 1981, I do. gave Bill Greider an interview in the Atlantic Monthly, slashing and ripping Reagan apart. Um, that was awful. The Gipper should have fired him, but whatever. Uh, this is similar to that. You always get these crazy kiss-and-tell books. Uh, what's going on in Bannon's head, I don't know. Um, bad mistake, very bad mistake, particularly in light of um, Trump's many accomplishments in the first year. And um, I think Steve Bannon is through politically, absolutely through. Long run damage to the president that 
thing about, you know, the Donald Jr. treasonous and all that, and the liberals are gobbling this up like, yeah. you know, there's no tomorrow. Well, they'll gobble. I don't see any long run, yeah. long run yeah. trouble for Trump on this. Okay. This is a story that, you know, will run. We'll see it Sundays, <laughs> but I don't think it has any long run uh, effects at all. Um, I think Steve Bannon is the big loser, but I also want to see, <laughs> this is the most fun, all my Trump-hating friends and all my Democrat Trump-hating friends, I guess they're going to have to defend Steve Bannon now. Absolutely. Yeah, he's, the, <laughs> he's the vicar of truth. Yeah. yeah. And I'm dying to see how they do that. He's the Oracle of Delphi. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, Larry, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Larry Kudlow. You're the best, Bill Bennett. The best. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's turn to foreign policy and the major story of the week, uh, the protests in Iran. Uh, is the president doing the right thing? Is this a moment that could change the future of Iran? Here to discuss this is our friend and Middle East expert, Michael Rubin. Michael is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's the author of a great book, Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes. Michael, thank you very much, and welcome to The Bill Bennett Show. Hey, thanks for having me, Dr. Bennett. It's great to be here. And just to answer your question, yeah, the president is doing something right. There's absolutely nothing wrong with standing up for the American brand, talking about American ideals such as freedom of movement, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, giving, giving people in Iran um, moral support, just like President Ronald Reagan gave people in the Soviet Union moral support. That's absolutely the right thing to do. Let's, uh, before we get into the president, what other advice we might give him and other things we might do, uh, it's good to hear you signal um, that uh, this, is the right, this is the right sentiment and the right things to say. What is going on in uh, Iran? Explain to me, since I don't know Iran very well and you know it very well, they're making a lot out of the fact that this thing started in the countryside or in the villages. Is this important? What, what is going on? Well, it started out, what, what we're seeing in Iran started out in economic protests. And the reason why this is so important is, number one, the protests turned against the regime as a whole rather quickly. We're not talking hardliners versus reformers. We're not talking this idea that somehow um, the regime can say they're only against some of us, not all of us. But one of the reasons they turned on the regime so quickly is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the security force uh, that is elite inside Iran, dominates the Iranian economy. They control perhaps 40% of the GDP. They own a lot of the factories that aren't paying back wages. And so people are turning against the regime for economic reasons, not only because the regime has failed to deliver, but it's the most hardline elements in the regime, which they see as culpable in their personal suffering. I see. Uh, and so I, I differentiate this then from what happened in, what was it, 2009? Well, we've had a number of protests. It wasn't just 2009. We had protests in 1999, 2001, 2009. What's different here is just how quickly people turned against the Supreme Leader, as well as the president and the other symbols of the regime. Um, in 2009, it was more of a mixed bag. We had the so-called Green Movement. It was, it was kind of leaderless, just like um, the protests are now, and that's one of the weaknesses of the protests. But here it seems that 
this notion that so many in the West embrace, that the reformers are somehow sincere, that notion's gone forever. The reformers have no more legitimacy than the hardliners. And if the Iranians are saying this, it behooves Western diplomats, Western officials, especially in Europe, to recognize that, that this fig leaf that we, that we seize upon simply, I mean, it's false. How widespread is this uh, revolution or reaction or rebellion? Is it, is it deep? Is it broad? Well, it's extremely widespread. A lot of people say, you know, this isn't as big as 2009, but the fact of the matter is, with the Internet sh- shut down, people simply don't know. Reporting yeah. on the countryside from Tehran is like reporting on Syracuse or Watertown, New York, from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The fact of the matter is, many of the Western journalists who are there simply don't know either. What we do know is these protests have spread like wildfire. I think what you can say safely, uh, after the protests in 1999, 2001, 2009, and now today, is Iran is a tinderbox. And the question is whether the government is better at smothering the embers than Iranians are at fanning the flames. Well, t- tell me which at, t- at this point. What, 21 dead? Is that correct? That's what I read. So the, uh, the regime is, is striking back, is repressing. Will they, will they snuff it out? Uh, what, what, what's your guess at this point? Well, I'm a historian, so I'm paid to predict the past. Yeah, but okay. One, okay. Of the things to, one, one of the things to keep in mind is that in Iran, when someone dies, you have the funeral, and then 40 days later, you have a commemoration. And so this is what ultimately brought down the, the Shah's regime was this 40-day cycle of protest. The other thing which I haven't heard a lot of people talking about is even if the regime manages to put this down, the fact of the matter is the Supreme Leader has had cancer. We know that not by rumor, but because he allowed himself to get photographed by state television getting treatment for cancer inside Tehran. Well, what happens when the Supreme Leader dies? If the Revolutionary Guard rallies around the Supreme Leader now and puts down the protest, what happens when he's no longer there? And we could have a situation where instead of the Supreme Leader's funeral being a time of mourning, it's going to be a time of celebration. You're going to see an explosion that puts what we just saw in the last week uh, to shame. Is there a second uh, Supreme Leader in the wings? Is there a vice Supreme Leader? No, that's the problem. The Supreme Leader, technically speaking, is the deputy of the Messiah on Earth. And so the deputy of the Messiah doesn't have another deputy. What happens is, in theory, there's an 86-member clerical body which chooses a new guy. What we know from practice back in 1989 when Ayatollah Khomeini, the the leader of the Islamic Revolution, died, is that clerical body is basically just a coffee clutch. It's a rubber-stamped body that everyone gets together, the regime elites, and they come upon a compromised candidate. The problem is there's no obvious compromised candidate this time around. So you could have a pro- prolonged period with absolutely no leadership in Iran. Do, does I guess I should have asked this earlier. Does this movement is this a movement for democracy, uh, for self government, uh, for ideas and ideals familiar to us that we can enthusiastically back, or is it at its heart something else? Well, that that's an excellent question, Bill. The fact of the matter is, Iran isn't as pro-Western or pro-American as so many American pundits like to say. That said, what gives me optimism is that back in 1906, Iran had a constitutional revolution. And for a short period of time, they had a constitutional parliamentary democracy alongside the Shah. Now, the point of this is, whereas in the backdrop of the Arab Spring, many of the Arab states said, hey, look, democracy 
it, it's a Western imposition, it's artificial, it doesn't belong here. The Iranians can look at democracy and parliamentary democracy as, as an indigenous concept, on top of which, unlike so many of the Arab states, they've tried Islamism, they recognize that Islamism isn't a panacea, and therefore they're inoculated against the worst forms of populism. What worries me about Iran is, again, the Revolutionary Guard controls 40% of the economy. Some of them are true believers. They're not necessarily going to disappear. Yeah. And so we're going to be dealing with some problems in Iran for some time to come. Yeah, I was going to say, what would if this, if this movement rebellion succeeded, what would it look like? What would it feel like? Would it be more uh, friendly to, uh, to the West, to the United States? Would uh, nuclear ambitions uh, be, uh, be given up? Uh, <clears throat> what, you, what would be its posture, would you guess? Well, put, let me put it this way. It would be like sort of France on a bad day. The Iranians can be xenophobic, they can be inward-looking, but I'm much less worried about France, as much of a pain in the neck as they can sometimes be with nuclear weapons, than I am with people with the ideology of Ayatollah Khamenei with nuclear weapons. Okay. Let's uh, let's then talk about our side. What uh, the president has voiced his support for the rebels uh, and for this movement. What else should the United States be doing? Well, I mean, it's not about us. It's about the Iranians, and we need to recognize that. What we should be doing, however, President Trump did the right thing domestically. It's got to be calibrated, however. It's good to eat one chocolate bar. It's not always good to eat 30 chocolate bars. So let's hope that the tweets are, are timed with some sort of strategy in mind. That said, the European and the U.N. silence has been shameful. And right, there's no yeah. reason why the Trump administration can't use its bully pulpit to, for example, name and shame the Europeans into standing up for the Iranian people. I mean, why is it, for example, Bill, that the European Green Movement will support independent labor anywhere in the world except in the Islamic Republic of Iran? Why is it that Sweden will support an emergency UN meeting on the U.S. making a sovereign decision to move our embassy to Jerusalem in Israel, but doesn't see what's going on in Iran as meeting the criteria for a Security Council emergency. It's absolute nonsense. What's the answer to that? Is this economics? Oh, yeah. The, the Europeans have always been mercantilistic in this. I mean, going back to Klaus Kinkel, the German foreign minister in 1993, when he talked about critical engagement, they were always much more interested in extending trade. And this also shows the fallacy of President Obama and Secretary of State John Kerry's approach to the Iran nuclear deal, because they said, look, if Iran misbehaves, the Europeans will, will, will embrace this idea of snapback sanctions. But it's clear the Europeans will never do anything that will impact the, the bottom line of any of their businesses. And, and what is that bottom line? What's the economic interest with Iran? Uh, what do they trade for? Or, or, or what, 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 what's the well, I mean, for, exchange about? There's oil, of course, although that's not a huge issue. There's also um, the French have a contract with Peugeot and an Iranian car manufacturer. Honestly, it's small potatoes, but the Europeans are convinced Iran is a country of 85 million people or so, and it's just in the market, which they don't want to undercut. They don't see the big picture. They're not seeing the forest through the trees. And Iran's always going to be a country of 85 million people. If it's a country of 85 million people, which doesn't threaten its neighbors, doesn't engage in civil conflict around around the region, that, that's much more important. Well, and it, and it certainly does. It is a threatening presence, uh, and, we, and we know that. Uh, just this last point, should the United States posture toward Europe 
uh, and other trading partners with Iran be, you know, you, you join us, you're with us, or you're with them? Uh, should we have issue some kind of ultimatum or uh, insistence that at the UN or elsewhere that they, uh, they they take our position on this? Well, it's important not to just do that rhetorically. For all people say unilateral sanctions don't work, the Europeans have always abided by American unilateral sanctions, but we need to have those sanctions in place. For example, if we go back to the Clinton administration, there was the Iran-Libya Sanctions Act. The Europeans complained, they bitched and moaned about it, but ultimately they came into line. The same thing was true during George W. Bush and the Obama administration with some of the financial sanctions. So if we are serious about this, and this means a much more broader, proactive strategy, then certainly the Europeans would fall into line. Well, uh, but now let's, let's focus on America. We're up to our ears with agreements with the Iranians from the Obama administration. What do, what, what do we do about them in light of, in light of this uh, uprising? Well, I mean, Obama tried to tie our hands, but there's a lot we can do with regard to human rights sanctions that have nothing to do with the nuclear war, and we can start working on that aspect. There, there are workarounds, and of course, President Obama, I'm sorry, President Trump is going to have to certify or recertify some sanctions in the IRGC in the next couple of weeks. We've already kicked some some sanctions um, with regard to the nuclear deal under terms of the corker Cardin compromise to Congress. And um, Congress has to decide and debate what to do here. Unfortunately, what I haven't seen coming from the White House, beyond saying simply Congress can, can decide, is any direction to Congress. So I'd like to see a much more coherent strategy come from the White House about what to do. A uh, simple-minded question. Why can't we just say, look, in light of what's happening, and we don't agree with Obama, we're just tearing up this agreement? In theory, we can do that. But we can't. Does, it, does it require the Congress? Congress has the ability right now to tear up the agreement. President Trump kicked it to Congress. I'm not sure whether or not um, the, the technicalities of it, whether Trump can do it by himself, but ultimately um, we do have the ability to walk away. This is the cost of, of the Obama administration not taking the joint comprehensive okay. plan of action to the Senate as a treaty, but instead trying to do a workaround yeah. with an agreement. Yeah, I mean, I, as for some of us, I mean, again, to put this in a larger perspective, would have never struck this agreement, would have never uh, uh, gone along with it. I was opposed to it from the beginning because Iran is a murderous regime, blood on its hands, American soldiers. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, its involvement in Syria. We, we can go on and on and on, can we not? I mean, we should not be doing business with this with this place and try to isolate it as much as we can and get our allies to as well. Am I, am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely right. And one of the other aspects that this whole episode in Iran now has shown is it's, it's not just Obama. 38 years after the Islamic Revolution, we collectively as the United States still have no idea what the factional divisions are within the security forces. And these are the key issues that will determine which way this uprising will go. We talk about hardliners versus reformers in terms of politics, Bill. But when it comes to the security forces, we have no idea what the divisions are there. I mean, another issue we don't know is in 2007, the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps reorganized itself, and they put one unit in every province. We also have no idea whether each of those provincial units are staffed with people native to the provinces in which they serve. If they are staffed by people native to the provinces, that suggests that ideology trumps kinship if given the order to fire on the crowd from the street. 
But if they're not allowing people to serve in their home provinces, that suggests that the Islamic regime knows that they're a lot weaker than they want to portray, and this becomes a key issue. Another way to look at this is, is this going to be 2009 in Iran where it's put down, or is it going to be 1989 in Romania where the security forces join in? Okay, uh, th- th- let's let's pause on that for a minute because you've mentioned the importance of the Revolutionary Guard here several times, controlling large parts of the economy. It's the enforcement arm of the regime as well, right? Right. What is the loyalty, is your guess, of the of the members of the Revolutionary Guard? They come from somewhere, uh, and c- c- do you believe that kinship uh, and you know being told to fire on your own people is is is, is something that would matter negatively that would uh, you know make people go in the other direction as members of the revolutionary guard or is this a you know is this a, a kind of ideological uh, bound uh, straitjacket uh, uh, you know militaristic agency of the state and all its members would be would just follow orders well the, the answer is it's in between we okay. know for a fact that the islamic revolutionary guard court isn't homogenous it's not all the same. Some people okay. join just for the sake of privilege. But on the other hand, this is something the U.S. is traditionally bad at. Some of these guys are deeply ideological. They, they've drunk the Kool-Aid. We don't okay. really understand that because okay. we, we project our, we mirror image ourselves onto that. Um, and, and so it's an intelligence hole and an inexcusable one. All right, but, but, but a lot turns on that question, right? Which way will they go? Will they fire on their own uh, kinsmen or, or not because they control so much, they have so much power? Well, this, this is one of the reasons, Bill, why I always oppose people who said, who put all their eggs in the reformist basket and believed in muddle-through approach um, towards reform in Iran because the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps exists to protect the supreme leader from everyone, including his own people. And until you change the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, there can be absolutely no success to muddle through reform. So okay. Okay. the question is, what, do, what strategy do we have in place to exacerbate fissures within the Revolutionary Guard? Now, one thing that makes these protests different from previous protests is we have some videos suggesting that some members of the security forces have joined in with the protesters, and that is very, very significant. When you say we uh, and what we can do, who are you talking about? The United States, its allies, uh, fellow travelers in, in, in Iran, who, the, the we who can, um, you know, have some, have some uh, uh, impact in this situation? Well, the question is when, when the United States looks at our Iran strategy, not just overt but covert, what is our goal? Our goal ultimately should be to moderate or change the regime. That right. can't happen without the Revolutionary Guard changing. So the issue here is what strategies do we have in place? And I'm not sure if we have any where okay. we can take some of the factions within the Revolutionary Guard and set them against each other. That can be done rhetorically. That can be done uh, by exposing malfeasance on the part of some of these people. It can be done by, by simply pointing out that, that some people have a very, very different um, perspective inside the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and that if they, if they continue to side with the wrong side, they are going to suffer personally and their families will suffer personally down the road. I see. All right. Well, let me ask you as a final question, and I know you're a historian, you um, like, prefer to be in the position of telling us uh, why something happened after it happened. 
but tell me what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think? How, how is this going to turn out? Is this going to be a repeat of 2009? Is it going to be different? Uh, where do you see this going? I'm, I'm afraid it's going to be a repeat of 2009, that it will peter out. But I think it's a dry run for what happens when the Supreme Leader dies. And that okay. could happen within a year or two. I see. All right. So to be continued, this one may, uh, may be put down, but uh, stay tuned. Absolutely. Michael Rubin, thank you very much. Uh, and we appreciate it. Um, this is great insight, great information. And uh, I know our listeners feel informed as well as uh, myself. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Bill. Well, okay. Uh, another great show in the books, folks. I think uh, we have to leave it there for today. I will talk to you next week. <laughs>